Welcome to the London Politica podcast. This is where we join industry thought leaders and experts to uncover the nexus of politics, markets, and society. My name is Manas Chavlo, and the guest joining me today is a real geopolitical visionary. He's the author of the bestseller, The Future is Asian, the founder of FutureMap, a data and scenario-based strategic advisory firm, and was named as one of the 75 most influential people of the 21st century. Joining me from Singapore, Dr. Parag Khanna. Thank you so much for being on the show. Really excited to speak with you today. Likewise, Manas. Great to meet you. You know, I don't think we could be having this discussion at a more fitting time uh, because just hours ago, Prime Minister Johnson unveiled the United Kingdom's first post-Brexit foreign policy review. Uh, and, you know, having only browsed through it briefly, I think a lot of the major policy shifts could have been picked straight out of your book. Uh, you know, among other things, the review signals the pursuit uh, of what they're calling an Indo-Pacific tilt with the goal of becoming, quote, the most integrated European partner in the region. Uh, and I think it also takes a very balanced approach towards China. I mean, certainly not the kind of bluster that we've been seeing from the more hawkish conservative party backbenchers lately. So, I mean, did you see this approach coming all along? And what, what do you kind of make of UK, the UK's pivot to Asia in a post-Brexit context? No, that is a great place to start. And uh, I do, I am having flashbacks as you asked the question to when I was last living in London in 2011 slash 12. And I had a couple of sessions with uh, FCO um, uh, officials in which they were doing whatever the review of that particular time 10 years ago was called. And the gist of it was that they realized that they had to have more efficient resource allocation diplomatically and commercially to focus on basically a half dozen countries. This was the mandate that the FCO was given at the time. Pick six to eight countries that we're really going to put our energy into to build trade ties, commercial leverage, to you know, boost uh, the size of embassies and this kind of thing. And I, I worked with them on that a bit by bit. And not surprisingly, uh, a fair number of the countries that made it you know, that, that made the cut were Asian countries. So the tilt was underway. And this is before Brexit was a thing. You know, this is before, uh, you know, not before Boris Johnson had his eyes on being um, on being a prime minister, because that probably was when he was in the womb. Uh, but, uh, but you know, he was, uh, was he even mayor then? I'm not, I can't even quite recall. Yes, he was mayor because mm -hmm. I was riding Boris bikes around uh, town. So <laughs> So that, so, you know, yes, we were moving in that direction. I had conversations with Jeremy Hunt when he was a foreign secretary about these issues. Uh, that was prior to my book even coming out. In any case, it's structural. And I think that's obviously for, for yourself and your colleagues and, and, you know, your friends, those who are studying international relations theory, those things that are structural are really baked into the system. They're long-term. Whoever is prime minister at any given time is going to continue to shift the needle in that direction. And of course, the Indo-Pacific terminology has been strongly adopted first by Japan and India, and now very institutionally by the United States. And of course, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the visit of uh, the US Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, to Japan, South Korea, and India is an opportune kind of moment for the UK to also be saying it's going to tilt uh, towards the Indo-Pacific, the Germans and the French have already come out with their statements. Um, I was uh, strongly in support of the EU's uh, Asia Connectivity Initiative that was launched in 2017, 2018. Um, so I do think this is part and parcel of a broader shift. I do think it's wise for the UK to do so. Obviously, it's you know even more important post-Brexit, but my point about structure is that it would have been important anyway. Absolutely. 
And and I think that links in really well with my kind of next question, because I've heard you speak and write a lot about China and China's Belt and Road Initiative. And it's something you've been covering, I think, since your first book came out over a decade ago. And I believe you visited nearly every country that's you know part of that program. Uh, and I don't get the sense that you're too happy with the mainstream narrative uh, that's coming along among Western commentators that sort of dismisses China's BRI project uh, as some you know, grand conspiratorial plot uh, for hegemony where China uses debt trap diplomacy uh, to cripple smaller countries and integrate them into its like, you know, so-called sphere of influence. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, in one of my classes at the LSC, one of my professors, I, you know, I won't name them, sort of explicitly labeled the BRI scheme as a neo-colonial institution. Uh, and, you know, you've been advocating for a very long time for an alternative perspective. Uh, could you outline what that is and how your experience, you know, traveling to all of these countries has shaped that narrative? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, I think that uh, a British academic would know colonialism when they see it. So, um, so in fact, that makes it that much more ironic to call it that. It is, it is neo-mercantile, but it's not neo-colonial, you know, and that's a very, very common mistake to look at it through the prism um, not of geopolitics, because it is geopolitical, it's highly geopolitical, it's intensely geopolitical, but that doesn't make it neocolonial, because the, the quest for direct administration of foreign societies, which is one good rough and ready uh, understanding of what colonialism is, um, you know, would not fit the description here. China, for example, is perfectly willing to abandon societies entirely if it no longer suits their supply chain interests and needs as sources of raw materials or as geographical gateways. And that's what we see happening in Africa right now. Africa has been massively demoted in the latest round of a BRI-related allocation from Chinese uh, investment and development institutions, right, in favor of China's own immediate Asian periphery. Um, so, you know, again, it's, but we don't need to get to nomenclature too much. But again, get to the, to the point that it is very geopolitical. It is Chinese grand strategy. It is as important as China's military modernization, development of aircraft carriers and submarines and uh, ballistic missiles and expanding its nuclear arsenal is Belt and Road, right? That doesn't mean, however, that when we look at it, we should see a linear pathway to success, right? You know, because China has articulated a vision, therefore it will become reality. And as you know, I've devoted many of my articles of the past year to pointing out that geopolitical complexity is a force more powerful than any one great power's grand strategy, which is a fancy way of saying just because China wants something, it doesn't mean it will get it. And chances are that what has happened is that China's own, um, you know, sort of strong articulation of BRI and the fanfare around it will bring about not its own demise, because I would also reject that notion as if it can be turned on and off like a switch, not at all. But it has evoked very significant counter maneuvers, which we're seeing right now, whether it is the American, the Japanese, the European or other. And there obviously is now bilaterally a huge amount of suspicion about China in so many of these quarters, whether it is because of debt trap diplomacy, whether it is because of um, you know, sanctions and strong arming and other, other kinds of, you know, again, tiffs that countries are having over their borders and so forth. So I, I advocate a view that is what I think you know, is best termed equilibrium, right? China has its legitimate interests. A lot of countries need Chinese investments. They need Chinese-built cheap infrastructure or high-quality infrastructure at a low price. Uh, they do have to take on debt, but if you're going to take 
on debt for something, it should be necessary infrastructure. It is a platform for growth, undeniably. And it's been a massive a failure, market failure of the international community for the last 75 years. So quite frankly, I applaud China for launching something known as the Belt and Road Initiative that contributes to the process of global infrastructure finance. I That doesn't mean that I condone debt trap diplomacy or using it as a tool of neo-mercantile advantage, not at all. But do developing countries need infrastructure finance? Yes. But now there's a much more competitive marketplace for it. And China will play a role in it, but it won't dominate it. And I think that's a good thing. A perfect analogy is Huawei. Huawei at its peak uh, represented 35% of the global market for telecommunications equipment. It's now fallen to 20% pretty much overnight as a result of the counter maneuvers. So that's the equilibrium we're looking for. We don't want to have any kind of um, uh, 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 monopolistic players in any marketplace as a rule, whether it's rare earth minerals, whether it's infrastructure finance, or whether it's 5G. Yeah, no, super interesting. I mean, you raised some really interesting ideas, but I do kind of want to push on that point a bit more broadly, because I think a lot of people are going to be listening to this and they're going to say, you know, fair enough, maybe the BRI isn't a neo-colonial project. And uh, certainly it's great that all of these countries in Central Asia and elsewhere are getting the financing for the infrastructure that they need so critically. But isn't it problematic that China is the one doing that, that, you know, it's the same authoritarian country that's put over a million Uyghur Muslims in uh, detention centers, it's, you know, uh, crushed dissent in Hong Kong, regularly stifles free speech. If this is a country that's gaining the necessary geopolitical uh, influence and soft power among the developing world, uh, when it's able to leverage that power and influence to underwrite a system that erodes our liberal democratic norms and institutions that we've relied on for the last few decades, I mean, that seems a little bit scary to me. Does that worry you? Well, the kinds of countries that China is most you know, influential in are not liberal democracies. They're not Western liberal democracies. They're not liberal democracies at all. So, uh, you know, as I recently pointed out, uh, these countries don't need China's you know, surveillance systems per se to be authoritarian or to have authoritarian tendencies, right? And they can buy that technology from American companies or Israeli companies or other companies. So let's be clear about causality, right? The world is not a, um, you know, a, a, a community of, uh, you know, again, modern, developed, westernized, liberal democracies, with the exception of China, right? It's mostly not countries that are, um, you know, credible Western liberal democracies. So we have to appreciate all the shades of gray. Secondly, for China, this is much more a geography than about proselytizing Chinese values, right? We need to be clear about that because again, this is not a colonial enterprise. It's purely about supply chains. Um, as you know, I devoted an entire book just to looking at infrastructure and supply chains as the key driver of many geopolitical decisions historically and in the future. And China fits into that category. China is not interested in your political system. It couldn't care less, right? It's only interested in the rocks beneath your feet. Um, or having you as a market to buy its excess, you know, goods. And there is a logic. There is one of the, uh, you know, theories. More than a theory, but one of, if you were to list ten motivations why China has done BRI, one of the top five would be this idea of just dumping excess capacity of its steel industry and others. Uh, other industries onto neighboring countries, right? In addition to uh, the more important factors, which are having 
uh, alternative trade routes to the dependency of the Strait of Malacca choke point, uh, you know, more overland routes to reach its largest export destination, which is Europe, and so on and so forth. So th this should be viewed in a much more material way rather than an ideological way, first and foremost. If you don't understand the material aspects, then you're prone to being highly polemical about this rather than understanding the facts from China's point of view, which are very largely geographically determined. Um, now, again, when it comes to soft power and spheres of influence, again, these things can change very, very quickly. A government that's heavily indebted to China can realize, you know, maybe too late, but certainly also uh, in time, that it needs to diversify its trade relationships. Now, I've spent the last 15 plus years going to countries where the leaders tell me that our strategy is A, B, C, anyone but China. But if no one shows up except China, I have to do business with China. Right. Myanmar has found itself in that trap. Number of Central Asian countries, Mongolia, you know, smaller, weaker commodities dependent countries with, you know, unreliable governments are not going to be darlings of capital markets. Right. They're not going to have lots of trade partners. They're not going to have lots of foreign investors. So China becomes their largest partner by default. You must uh, follow, you know, if you want to undermine Belt and Road or if you feel that it is going to dilute or undermine the prospects for democratization in these countries, you have to put your money where your mouth is. And that's another phrase that I commonly use to put this in layman's terms, right? Denouncing China in a country that's desperate for, you know, basic telecommunications equipment or roads and railways, and those are not being financed by Western institutions. If you're not putting where your money where your mouth is, you're basically just writing an op-ed. Right, and you're not really achieving anything. And what's happening now, and what I'm very, very pleased to see, is that the West is putting its money where its mouth is. It's saying China wants to buy your electricity grid. Hold on, we'll give you a better deal. Right? Chinese development banks are offering, you know, four percent interest rates. We'll get it down to one point five. You know, China wants to buy the port of Trieste in Italy. Hold on. You know, Germany and France and other countries will get together and they'll buy the port instead. Right? Put your money where your mouth is and be prepared to be putting your money where your mouth is for the next 50 years. And if you want to talk about, you know, not again, how to defeat Belt and Road, because you don't want to defeat infrastructure finance. You want there to be, you know, if you travel to many of these countries, as I have, you'd be very glad that you're driving on a Chinese road. Right, because they actually make good roads, and no one else made that road. So, ergo, if you wanted to go to that country and actually get around, you should be grateful for the Chinese road. Again, there's nothing wrong per se with the desire to build the right infrastructure in the right place at the right time, especially when it's decades overdue. But uh, if you don't want China to do it, then you offer have to offer something that's faster, better, cheaper. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think this is very relevant to a piece you wrote, uh, you know, a few years ago, a uh, very intriguing piece where you said that the new arms race was essentially going to be over infrastructure and, you know, connectivity. Uh, and that, you know, at least then the United States was steadily losing ground, whereas, you know, China's obviously going well beyond uh, to invest in and connect a lot of its neighbors. Uh, could you break down what that infrastructure race is and why it's so important in this context? Right. So infrastructure arms race is very much the term that I would use to describe this process of when it comes to the Eurasian geography over the last 30 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was 1991, you know, Europe and the European Bank for Reconstruction Development spent so much um, invested so much in modernizing Eastern Europe and building railways and pipelines and so forth all the way to the Caucasus, investing a lot in Russia and Central Asia as well. The Japanese did as well with JBIC and, you know, through their sponsorship of the Asian Development Bank. 
And then you have China and Belt and Road, right? So you have, again, you already have a marketplace, but China came on very, very strong. The infrastructure arms race is now everyone else getting involved. You have Australia and New Zealand in a partnership with the United States, the so-called Blue Dot Network. You have Japan and India talking about the connectivity corridors. As I mentioned earlier, the European Union with their Asia Connectivity Initiative and the EU and Japan with the Sustainable Infrastructure Finance Initiative. All of these more recent um, you know, constructs have only emerged in the last three years. Please ask yourself why. If Belt and Road had never existed, would anyone in Brussels or London or Washington have cared at all to do these things? Mm. Of course not. All of it is a response to China, which is fine, right? But let's acknowledge that fact. And so the arms race has been kicked off, if you will, by China, which is why it will not win the arms race because it has first mover advantage in some areas, but the sum total of all of the forces, uh, diplomatic, strategic, just look at the quad arrangement militarily, um, again, all of the uh, new defense acquisition procurement, soft alliance kinds of your coalitions that are building, plus all of the new financial flows into these countries, plus their own suspicion of China. If you add all that up, it's quite overwhelming which is why, to be honest with you, uh, I don't really lose sleep at night over whether or not we will have this geopolitical equilibrium, right? Um, Asia for 4,000 years has been mostly multipolar. Eurasia has always been multipolar. Uh, it's far more, far more likely to be chaotic than to be uh, subject to the whims of a single hegemon such as China. So yes, we should be concerned about individual conflict scenarios, North Korea, Taiwan, India and China, and so forth. All of the major World War III scenarios are in Asia. I have make no doubt about it. I analyze them every single day. However, I don't worry that in the end, there will be this equilibrium in, in Eurasia and that no one power will prevail. Mm. And, you know, certainly I think a lot of what you're saying is correct in that it's been a response uh, to China largely in the last three years. But I think there's also a you know, a domestic dimension that we haven't mentioned yet, you know, because I think for all of its triumphant exceptionalism, uh, American infrastructure compared to its Asian counterparts is, you know, quite frankly, terrible. You know, it's literally crumbling. Uh, and I think every four years, uh, the American Civil Society of Engineers comes up with a rating uh, of America's vital infrastructure. I think last time they gave it a D plus, you know, which isn't very good, especially from I don't Asian even know what a D plus is. I'm just really glad I never, never got <laughs> it. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, but you know, there's also something else I read that was something about how uh, America would, you know, need to spend something like $2 trillion of the next decade just to get its roads in fighting shape. I mean, uh, how do you go about convincing American electorates that they should vote for policies uh, that get the U.S. to compete with China in, you know, international infrastructure projects when the domestic situation and, you know, the road outside their house is in concerning shape? It's, it's not really about sort of buy American. I mean, if you think about export credits of the past and, you know, and, and these kinds of um, tools of tied aid, that's not really what this is about, right? America is not, uh, you know, is, is not a huge player anymore in some of those areas because it's not cost competitive, obviously, to do anything with American contractors, engineers, and so forth outside of the realm of defense is, is highly, highly costly. If governments hire McKinsey, right, it's not because USAID told them to hire McKinsey as such, right? So when it comes to infrastructure, it's not, it's, 
actually, actually, and I, 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 I tallied this up a few years ago. The top 25 largest EPC companies, right? The engineering, procurement, construction companies, uh, 23 out of 25 are European or Asian. Only two are American, right? So America is not doing this because it wants Bechtel to get huge contracts in Kyrgyzstan, right? It's just about making sure that Kyrgyzstan does not become a wholly owned subsidiary of China. That's what this is about. And for Europeans, it's about uh, getting, it is about commerce, right? Europe is very much a commercial actor, a commercial superpower. They do want Siemens and Alstom and um, all of their infrastructure companies and, and, and uh, you know, two automotive companies and so forth to get the contracts for uh, the design, the implementation of oil and gas grids and, and uh, electricity grids and all these sorts of things in those countries because Europeans do those very, very well. Um, and what, you're, what America is doing right now, and again, in the example of 5G, is providing that diplomatic cover, right? Strong arming countries or convincing them or cajoling them to not go with 5G, not so that an American company can do 5G, because I'm not aware that any would, uh, because again, America is not providing those export credits, does not have that industrial policy that says, hey, AT&T, go and build a 5G network in Egypt, right? They're not interested in that, right? Where, what is the revenue that they would have in Egypt compared to the United States of America, right? It's insignificant. But what has it done for Nokia and Ericsson, right? It's opened the door for them. So in that sense, you can view this as a transatlantic agenda in which it's about diplomacy, it's about strategy, it's about commerce, but not in equal weight to the participants. So in other words, in typical, again, IR fashion, there's a fair bit of free riding going on here, right? And Europe is happy to be a free rider on America's you know, diplomatic cajoling to boost its commercial opportunities in these markets. And the bargain or the calculation that quite a few European governments have made in joining either BRI or AIB is that they would have greater access to these deals. Now, when we see year after year that the majority of contracts for infrastructure projects in Ethiopia or in Bangladesh or in Kazakhstan or in Serbia or whatever have gone to Chinese uh, firms, that's when Europeans say, hey, wait a minute, you know, here is evidence that this is not a fair and equitable thing. It's not a big tent the way China has proclaimed. And what will happen as part of this infrastructure arms race is that these countries may start to shame China. They, they may say, look, we joined BRI, we joined AIB, you promised this would be equitable, you're obviously that you're reneging or you're not making this a fair and balanced arrangement. Therefore, we're going to quit unless you give us more deals. And then China, for fear of that, some, some degree of that shame, is going to start to let them in more and more and more. Hmm. In many ways, it's already happening. I can cite you quite a few examples, uh, I mean, without, being, without naming names, but of um, uh, uh, Chinese companies that have uh, you know, reached out to find Western firms to be their kind of face, to partner with, do JVs with in Myanmar, precisely because they know that in Myanmar right now, it's um, not, it's frowned upon of this is pre-coup, um, you know, to be, to have everything dominated by China. So the Chinese firms in their own self-interest for their own image, preservation of their own image in order to get contracts actually are trying to partner with Western firms. So again, 
this is not a one-way street, right? The, the world of BRI and the dynamics within it look very different today than they did in 2016. In 2016, everyone was saying, this is a Chinese neo-colonial plot to take over the world and nothing is getting in their way. Fast forward to 2021, and suddenly people are saying it's on its back legs, it may be dying, it's focused only regionally, no one wants to do business with China, China has to partner with others. Mm. I mean, it's a very different conversation. So you again, you always have to view these things as a marketplace, uh, because that's what I, what, what I call, in fact, the geopolitical marketplace. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a lot more to explore there as well, I think. But, you know, we've talked plenty about China and I almost feel bad because one of the central arguments in your work is that Asia is way more than just China. You know, Asia is 5 billion people, like you point out, and only a third of which are Chinese. And so the broader context, I think we often neglect so many parts of Asia that are no less dynamic and no less geopolitically perplexing uh, than China. And so kind of turning our attention towards the rest of Asia, what do you think are the most underrated uh, geopolitical or you know macroeconomic trends in the region that should be on our radar but often go unnoticed. No, that's a great question. I mean, part of it is indeed this uh, backlash against uh, China, if you will, which I think of as being relatively simultaneous and subconscious and uncoordinated. If you go back to the you know the Hambantota port fiasco, if you will, and the, uh, the, um, the, the, uh, the Sri Lankan decision to hand over operations of the port on a 99-year lease, that sent shockwaves right, in, uh, around the world, but it, it, very different messages came across. In the West, people said, ha-ha, this is the first domino to fall, and now the whole developed world in the ocean rim is going to be Chinese you know, colonies. That's not what happened. What happened was that the next day, the governments of Kenya or Djibouti or Pakistan or uh, you know Kazakhstan and many others, each of those countries had a cabinet meeting and said, how do we avoid being the next Sri Lanka? So in a way, they were one step ahead of Western analysts who saw, again, a linear path, but nothing is linear, right, in geopolitics. Instead, what you have is suspicion going through the roof as a result of that episode. Now, another thing is uh, what I call the fourth wave, right? The first wave of Asian growth is Japan. The second was the Tigers. The third was China. And now you have South and Southeast Asia. So Pakistan and India and Bangladesh through all of the ASEAN countries, particularly the, the, the ASEAN five, the big five, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, and of course, Singapore as the capital market and foreign investment driver and engine uh, for the region. So this fourth wave of growth is two and a half billion people, right? Um, younger populations, every single country is a younger median age than China, and, and most of them substantially younger than China, except for, for Thailand. Um, and uh, prior to um, the pandemic, you know, very steady growth rates and the rebound projected for the region is, is quite solid and promising. So this fourth wave of growth is one of those trends that should not be ignored, right? Um, and then within that, Southeast Asia in and of itself, right? A region that's preserved stability, that's managed to incrementally uh, integrate, that's leapfrogging in technology in many ways, who, that has become another factory floor uh, of the world. A lot of things are going right in this, uh, in this region as well. In fact, uh, you know, it has half the population of China, 
but it's bringing in a similar amount of FDI, or again, was pre-pandemic, um, half the population of India, but a larger GDP than India. So I think there are these very important structural trends. Then, as we uh, only alluded to earlier, on the geopolitical side, um, the, uh, the arms race, not the infrastructure, but the military one, because you do have the quad crystallizing and quad countries providing um, as, a, as a coalition support to um, Malaysia, uh, sorry, to, to Indonesia, to Vietnam, Philippines. And I expect that to ramp up in some way so that you can have a bit of a, a pushback against China. Now, let's be clear that, by the way, we started by talking about Indo-Pacific, but I think it's very important for all of your um, listeners to appreciate that, that even if you're going to start to write lots of papers about Indo-Pacific for your classes and stuff, it's still three different theaters. The, the, the future of the Indian Ocean looks very different from the future of the Western Pacific, which looks very different from the future of terrestrial Eurasia, right? You have at least three macro theaters within this framing of Indo-Pacific, right? Just to be clear. The Indian Ocean, we should have no worries, will remain multipolar, right? It's not going to be dominated by China, which is in no way contiguous to the Indian Ocean, especially as India is making such massive investments in its Navy and the US, Britain and others all have their naval positions there. So again, the future of the Indian Ocean does not look like the Western Pacific, which is becoming heavily militarized, where China is increasingly dedicating its resources, has you know, built up its area denial capabilities, wants to be able to dominate the first island chain and be able to reach beyond that and already can with some of its capabilities and so forth, which is again different from Eurasia, which is uh, much more the site of this competitive infrastructure arms race. So we have a minimum of three different dynamics going on. So when you say again, what are the trends that are really, really rock solid? Uh, these are just some of them. Yeah. And, you know, in your answer, you alluded to the Quad Summit, which I definitely want to explore further because, you know, in case any of our listeners missed this uh, last week, there was a big conference that took place between the countries of, you know, India, Japan, United States and Australia uh, with what I thought was a very broad mandate because they covered vaccines, emerging technology, you know, cyberspace, maritime security, all sorts of things. Uh, some people have described this as an Asian NATO, which, you know, we're talking about Eurocentrism, I find a little bit funny because I think in the last couple of decades, anytime there's even a hint of defense cooperation in any part of the world, it's, you know, the, the headlines are inevitably the, the new NATO of somewhere. Uh, but, but broadly, Dr. Kana, what do you make of this Quad Summit? Uh, is the U.S. finally engaging in a meaningful way? Uh, with Southeast Asia, or is this going to be more like some of the recent half-hearted attempts that you know it's made in the past? Well, first of all, you're making me feel old because when I was uh, at uh, the Brookings Institution in 2003 through uh, through through five, um, we were running these track two dialogues under the leadership of the great uh, Stephen Cohen, uh, recently passed away, one of the greatest South Asia scholars of uh, you know of recent decades and Strobe Talbot, who was then president of Brookings, and both obviously very, very strong Indophiles. And the, these, back, these sort of track two dialogues of Japanese, Australian, and Indian officials began back then, so 20 years ago. And guess what we called it informally? The Asian NATO. So it's taken about 20 years for this to fully crystallize. And um, I'm very pleased that it has. 
Um, again, not necessarily in this ideological way, because again, if it were democratic ideology that drove this, it would have instantiated much, much earlier, right? This is, again, let's be materialist. Geopolitics is a very materialist and unsentimental kind of discipline, right? So now the material conditions and the, the balance of uh, threat, if you will, has, has, brought, um, has brought these powers together. We're calling it the Quad, which is obviously better than Asian NATO because NATO doesn't really have a good image or aftertaste for the next generation because they don't view it as nearly as meaningful an organization as it was during the Cold War. Also, NATO is formally designated as an alliance structure, but Asians um, uh, don't tend to like the term alliance. And in Asian history, you don't find many instances of rigid alliances. So we also have to be sensitive to that. So this is a coalition of the willing. And importantly, it's broad based, right? So as you mentioned, they're talking about supply chains, they're talking about innovation technology, they're talking about cyber um, and military. So I think that's extremely important. In some ways, it's like, um, you know, it's more like a geopolitical, geoeconomic G7 or G20, but minus China. And in, indeed, the UK is talking about a D10 or a you know T10 democracy technology. So it'll be a fluid grouping of countries that's going to you know do its level best to achieve a certain degree of again not just not not necessarily self sufficiency, but non China dependence in critical areas of technology and and to strengthen the the self sufficiency or capacity of other countries. Southeast Asia will be a big beneficiary of this, even though, of course, there's not a single Southeast Asian country that's actually a member of the Quad. But obviously, you're going to want to be ensuring that you're producing your car parts and semiconductors and medical equipment in Thailand or Indonesia or the Philippines or Vietnam, not in China. So ultimately, because commercial forces may flow from the geopolitical decisions, the activity or the commercial activity will still flow to the lowest cost uh, partner countries. And that's where India and Southeast Asia really, uh, really benefit. That's why there's been this joke in this region for a long time, which I often quote, which is that the US-China trade war is over and the winner is Vietnam. Mm -hmm. um, you know, after the meeting, I think uh, Jake Sullivan made a statement. He said that the meeting wasn't fundamentally about China. Uh, and, you know, to some degree, uh, I don't think anyone believes him because uh, certainly just with the grouping of countries, the timing of it and the geopolitical situation, it almost seems like this is, you know, an anti-China club. Uh, if you were in, you know, China's, uh, if you're a Chinese diplomat right now, would you be worried? Should China be rattled by this? Well, so in a way, again, the counter forces have been building for quite a long time. The, obviously, China has with... Uh, you know, most other governments, you know, uh, countries looks at the symbolism, you know, very takes it very seriously, right? So, you know, they don't have to make statements against it, or they don't have to denounce it, they can just dismiss it until it happens, then all of a sudden, it, it's happened. But it has been happening. So they've been worried all along. And so the notion that, you know, this headline that we've seen in the last week or two, China very concerned about quad summit, you know, that just needed that that was just said because it formalizes the obvious right it ratifies the obvious so china would prefer to not have evoked this counter coalition which of course again they very uh they were very uh scrupulous you know to not mention china per se 
as such, right? But that doesn't matter, right? It's the it's the elephant in the room, and and uh, that that's just diplomatic framing and niceties. But of course, it's it's about China. But it kicks off again a very important process, which is more important, which is ensuring that there is no monopoly, right? To to preserving equilibrium in non-hegemony in this geopolitical marketplace. That's fundamentally what it is about at an even deeper level than China per se. And uh, and I think that we should not lose sight of that. And so again, thus far, I would give a lot of credit to uh, the, 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 the last couple of US administrations in promoting this, um, and obviously to all of the others for stepping up, um, you know, particularly, of course, uh, Japan and India. And by the way, the more European participation, the better, because they do ultimately trade a lot more with Asia than the United States does. Yeah. Um, now, you know, we, we've discussed kind of a lot of worrying trends today, just to kind of end off on a more positive note. Um, what makes you hopeful for the future? You know, is there something that gets lost in the noise and uh, all the sort of geopolitical bluster that makes you you know, optimistic about the unfolding situation in the world? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I, I've been relatively optimistic or at least pleased that in the last 30 years, again, despite all of the major conflict scenarios in Asia, the major conflict, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, uh, formations and tensions, we haven't seen any of them erupt into a major regional or global war, which is not to say that it's not going to happen, because if it's going to happen, it could very well be soon. I still believe, however, that if you take each of these, Taiwan, North Korea, you know, India with China, India, Pakistan, and so forth, the fact is that I still don't see chain reactions among them necessarily unfolding at the same time. So again, Asia is not Europe, right? Which is, uh, you know, a simple way of, a blunt way of saying Asian, Asia's future is not Europe's past. And mm -hmm. the dominant frame that so many scholars and intellectuals and commentators have used to project scenarios for Asia's geopolitical future has been Europe's past. If you remember 2014, The Economist and every other magazine in the world said 2014 in Asia is going to be like 1914 in Europe, right? You have these, um, you know, uh, the, these uh, many, many tensions between countries. You can have these uh, miscalculations and escalations and chain reactions and the whole region and world is going to go up in flames. Well, here we are seven years later, it hasn't happened. So what I urge is that we look at Asia's past to understand Asia's future. Seems logical. I just wish more people did it. And when you do look at Asia's future through that frame, you come out, again, relatively optimistic that parties realize, even, even the superpowers like China realize, that they can't have it all and that they won't have it all. And that even though certain things are said and done for national consumption, domestic consumption, there are limits. And as I have said to officials in China, um, you know, when, when I view them as overstepping, I say, do you really want a 14 front war? Right. And perhaps it's not something that they hear often enough, you know, and I'm happy to travel mm -hmm. to China and deliver that message personally, as, as I have. And I think that hits home. And what and you know even though you said what 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 makes one optimistic I'll end on a you know sort of again a note of caution speaking to yourself and and other young people um, which is that what what one of the things that bothers me in the last uh, five ten years in particular of watching the next generations of officials come up enter the ranks 
whether you know, it's just a little bit older than yourself, whether it's in the United States, whether it is in Asian countries, is that default hawkishness, this sense that to prove myself and be taken seriously in the bureaucracy in India, in Korea, in Japan, in China, I have to be a hawk, right? I have to be a tough guy. I have to be, you know, a realist, right? And on the one hand, it's a pity that the structural conditions do lend themselves in a very, again, material way mm -hmm. to that being a justifiable position. But what that takes off the table, unfortunately, is any sense of changing the rules of the game, of being creative, of thinking about how to avoid repeating the mistakes of the past. And therefore, I find it very sad to see young people casting aside idealism and being seduced into the ideologies of the old timers, whereas this should really be an OK Boomer moment in <laughs> geopolitics with young people saying, you know what, we're really not going to go down that route. You know, mm -hmm. we're really not going to build up uh, even larger long range nuclear arsenals. Right. We don't need to do this. Let's handle it this way. Right. How about we actually try to settle this conflict in a way in which everyone gains a little, loses a little, like that kind of thing. I would like to see a lot more young people vocally speaking like that and making moves in that direction. And I'm, again, I'm not seeing it right. I, I still think that we're all young enough that we can agitate in that direction, especially as people realize just how how devastating conflict actually would be. But I want to see it actually happen. Absolutely. Dr. Kanda, an incredibly fascinating discussion. I think it certainly left me with a lot to think about. Uh, and I think your advice at the end was brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure, Manas. Great to see you. Uh, and to our listeners, if you like this episode, you're going to love Dr. Kanda's book, The Future is Asian. It's very readable. It's very engaging. And I think it grapples with what's perhaps the most important uh, and significant political risk of the 21st century. But that's all for this episode. Stay tuned, stay safe, and I'll see you next week.